Especially of an animal in a wild state after escape from captivity or domestication. Alcatraz, Arab Spring, one billion rising. Freedom schools, the Maroons, rebellion thriving. We've been rising since the dawn of creation. Sun in the blood of our veins, liberation runs. Welcome to Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by the Grassroots Adult Freedom School Liberation Spring. I'm your host, Anjali Nathupadia. Let's begin with a content note or trigger warning. Here at Feral Visions, we go deep, and that often means courageously addressing imperialist, white supremacist, cis-heteropatriarchal, capitalist settler colonialism in order to support healing and transformation. Bypassing isn't an option. The only way out is through. The time for denial is over, and today's a great day to keep it real. Since we're unapologetically truth-telling, please practice excellent self and community care while listening. To begin on that note, I invite you to join me for one deep breath right now so that we can be as present as is realistically possible moving forward with this dialogue. If you're feeling it, do inhale then exhale with me right now. Thank you for showing up to do this work. Let's dive right in. To the place where we can all attain emancipation from oppression, break the chains from Haiti to Tibet and worldwide. Don't forget the resistance in our roots and resilience in our breath. In the blood of our veins, liberation runs. We are standing on the shoulders of the ancient ones. From March 8th to 10th, 2018, the Zapatistas convened the first international gathering of politics, art, sport, and culture for women in struggle. It was held at the Caracol of Morelia, Sotschoch zone of Chiapas, Mexico. This historic gathering is the largest event the Zapatistas have ever held, with over 7,000 participants, including over 2,000 Zapatista women from various Caracoles. Cis men weren't allowed. Some white women came through and were super problematic, although that's not the focus of this conversation. For this episode, I'm in dialogue with one of my dearest sisters about our experience at the event. Part of the intention of this episode is to share an audio report back for folks who weren't able to attend. I see that as part of our ethical responsibility for this reason to share, particularly because the compañeras asked us to spread the word about their work. You can find footage of some of their speeches online where their clearest requests are to not give up, to not sell out, and to fight against capitalist patriarchy until we win. So today we're joined by Carol Rojas, who's an educator, writer, dreamer, and lover of all things fierce. A woman of color and a proud daughter of hardworking immigrants, she was born and raised in Southern California by way of Chile and Venezuela. She has a master's degree in women's studies from San Francisco State University and a BA in women's and gender studies and communications from Cal State Fullerton. A self-described fighter and survivor, Carol has spent her entire adult life aligning to groups, efforts, and organizations that work in the service of the community. 
Over the last decade, these efforts included work as an elementary school teacher in Oakland, California, where she continuously fought for more trauma and counseling services for her students and promoted culturally relevant pedagogy and practices through school-wide efforts. After teaching in Waipahu, Hawaii, for two years, she recently relocated back to Southern California to support loved ones in need. Having survived teacher burnout at the hands of systemic inequities, Carol is trying her very best to be as intentional as possible as she aligns herself to work that is both meaningful and doesn't take advantage of her caretaking spirit. She tries her damnedest to resist, exist, and persist in a world that would rather have us die out, and tries her best to stay woke. She practices drumming and dancing as tools of healing, grounding, and resistance. And can I also just add on a little to what she humbly shared with us? Taking it back to our college days, I have personally witnessed Carol putting her body on the line, defending the South Central Farm as it was being attacked, interning at Critical Resistance's South Central LA chapter when we first both started organizing for prison abolition, co-founding United Students Against Sweatshops chapter on our campus together. She was right there alongside the rest of us in the feminist activist group on campus raising all the right kinds of hell in Orange County. I don't know how many pro-immigration rallies we attended together back in the day, but I share these incredibly nostalgic anecdotes to demonstrate that some community members have been doing the work for their entire lives, regardless of what ends up on a resume or on social media, and to pay respects where due to the everyday freedom fighters who do the right thing when nobody's looking, particularly when it's sometimes at great risk or personal sacrifice. Without any further ado, let's get into it. Well, good morning. It's so fantastic to have you on the show. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm feeling wonderful because we're having this conversation and uh, you're one of my best friends. So it's really awesome to, to be able to be in this space with you. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Yeah, yeah I feel the same way. So special. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, like I mentioned in the introduction, we were able to have this really incredible experience in early March, so just last month, attending a historical event that, of course, most people were not able to experience. And so for me, part of the intention of having this episode was to be able to offer more of a sort of formal report back for folks who were not able to attend. And so taking it back with that in mind, maybe we could get started with what inspired you to attend the convocation to begin with. And I know I had something to do with that. I asked you if you wanted to go with me. Uh, so you can go there, of course. Uh, but in terms of your decision-making process, uh, what was that like for you? Yeah, sure. So yes, the short version is that you asked me to go and I normally do things that you ask me to do. <laughs> um, the longer version, I think, is so I guess a little bit about me. Uh, I've worked in education for like over 10 years, which you know, a lot of that work was spent working uh, with the community in Oakland and sort of fighting a for trauma services and doing a lot of things on that campus. And I worked for a really long time. And I think over the course of the last 10 years, I have been feeling to different 
uh, extents, I'd say, just like immense burnout with not just my work there, but also sort of the toxicity that we've been exposed to in our daily lives with our politics. And and not that it's new, but it's just sort of this continuation of, of what's going on on a bigger scale. And then on top of that, I'll say a little bit more personally, I've been dealing with a lot of people I love combating, you know, horrible illness and, and I think different things that are, that are also connected to this toxicity that we're sitting in. And so I was, I had just moved back to Southern California, Orange County, and just really sort of feeling that the heaviness of the world and uh, something that I've, I'm seeing in so many people that I'm close to. And also feeling really conflicted because I'm sitting in this space where I'm sort of noticing all these really terrible things going on and this need to name it and seeing lots of people and lots of folks in different communities and in this new com- community that I'm in, naming it in very real ways and also seeing folks that are just like com- like not, you know, that are just sort of in the system. And I don't know if that's sort of a coping mechanism or, or what's going on. But for me, I was having a really tough time just being, you know, just sort of making sense of all of the horror in the world with, with the ways in which people were engaging with it. And so when you mentioned that the Zapatistas were invoking all of the women who struggle all over the world, it was this, it was really sort of like a beacon of light, like just this glimmer of hope, you know, that I've, I've definitely, I learned about the Zapatistas in the past and I, from time to time would come back to some of the work that they were doing. And I've always, always respected the work and I've, I've always admired them because I felt as though they offered this alternative, you know, in this very, very real, tangible way, how our how we could live our world, you know, like their big thing is another world is possible. So, so when I saw that I, that things aligned and I had the opportunity to actually go, uh, you know, I, I think I booked my flight that week. So. <laughs> and, you know, granted, like, I'm not doing super well financially, like, I, you know, like, but it was just sort of like priorities. Oh, we're going to go hang out with the Zapatistas. Yes, let's do it. Let's go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that background. And so what was some of your experience at the event? And I know that that's a profound question. And so to begin to allow folks that weren't there to sense into some of the depth of us both taking a breath, even when I invoke that yeah. question. Um, so again, yeah. I know that it's a huge question, um, but could you share with our listeners a little bit of what it was like for you to be there? So in this caracol or totally autonomous region um, where, right, the Mexican federal government has no jurisdiction, where people are militarily supporting their sovereignty, um, defending, right, their autonomy, and then allowing outsiders such as ourselves to be able to get a sense of that. What was that like for you? There's so many layers to that. I think the biggest thing that I keep going back to, uh, and I've mentioned this to you before, and I've I've talked about it uh, to other folks that were there too, is just the level of safety that I felt there. I 
I said, and I continue to say, I have never in my life felt more safe than I did while I was there. And I think, I think that has to do with a lot of different things. You know, we're talking about a community that really, really pairs their theory to practice. So you're not just, you don't just talk about being, you know, a collective organization. You see it from the way that people get their food, you know, or prepare their food. You see it in the ways people step up or speak, like people speak in a collective manner, you know? And so I think that in itself sort of shifted just the embodied experience, you know, like we are so used to, at least I will say in our society, it's such an individualistic society. And so to shift that in every single aspect of your daily life, it's, you feel it differently. You feel things differently. Time is different. Time is slower, you know, and there's just sort of a a deeper appreciation and meaning for just like the everyday tasks that you do. And then on top of that, going back to sort of the safety piece, this was a space, as as we mentioned, there were no men allowed. That just shifted the energy completely. Like I, I absolutely love men. I have men in my life. It's wonderful, <laughs> you know. But I feel as though there is such a deep need for spaces where we really get to unpack the issues that we have as women. And I think that's what they, the Zapatistas, continue to go to. But there's also sort of this this piece that this big piece that shifts because. Again, we come from a very capitalistic society that is rooted in individualism and is rooted in competition. You know, in their opening speech, the Zapatista women said something along the lines of, you know, we can we can compete like we can compete if you want to. We can choose who, you know, the smartest is and the most revolutionary is and the prettiest is and the best dancer is and the best. You know, I'm, I'm totally paraphrasing. Or we could come here and we could learn from each other and we could be in collective with each other and struggle with each other. And that's not, it, the thing is, being in that space, it's not just words. They actually back up those words with actions and you feel it in every single interaction. So that's why, you know, when you ask that question, how is it like to be there? I mean, I feel like it's just a complete shifting of, of what we know and what we are so used to in our everyday lives. And so you just both see it, but you feel it at every single level of your body. And I think that, again, sort of speaks to that safety in a way, starts to touch on that safety. Right. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that element up. Is there anything else about your somatic experience there that you would want to speak to? Because that is so significant to talk about, particularly being in an anti-capitalist space. What's the somatic experience of anti-capitalism, right? Because if people could begin to sense into that, can you imagine how quickly we would have more folks immediately seeking the destruction of capitalism because they could have a more robust understanding of how much better they could feel? Mm. You know, I feel as though, so one of the things that was very apparent to me and that I've known to a certain extent in my daily life is that I hold my body in a way that I'm sort of always bracing myself in our world. Being in that space I felt that melt away and I felt myself uh, begin to soften. And again, I think, you know, one of the things that I was talking about with a friend 
was that this was a space like you really have to think about this is a space that was calling all women who struggled to this space, all women that were able to come to come to this space. And and when you think about the women who struggle, that meant we had leaders in struggle from all over the world concentrated in this space. And those folks are, you know, the women who generally women are the ones who sort of take up the arms and, and put their bodies on the line for the, you know, collective healing and collective liberation. And so one of the things that I noticed, because that space was such a safe space, and because the Zapatistas constructed this sort of a space that was able to hold people in a way that was very unique, what I saw over and over again were these women who are women leaders and struggling and and fighting for for so much in our world to uh, be able to soften you know, and like, and so it was so interesting because the Encuentro itself was so incredibly beautiful and joyous. And it was also incredibly heartbreaking because, you know, we would walk around and you know this, we would see mothers with the, with pictures of their, of their daughters who had been murdered or disappeared. Right. We saw there were art galleries out that also showed folks who had been murdered by the cops or the government or whoever. Right. And all these women who are always made to brace themselves and made to be hard and have to be hard in the outside world. Right. That's what was one of the things that was just so amazing for me to see was just because we had this space that this sort of safety where folks could really soften up, we saw sort of this almost collective mourning, but people were allowed to break down and cry and just sort of be, be so angry and upset and about all of the, you know, injustices in the world, but there was a space to hold them and they knew they were going to be safe. You know, and I don't know if I see that outside, outs- in that way, in that, definitely not at that level. You know, it was just, it was amazing. So I, I can't even begin to imagine, like, we are sick. Our society is, is very sick and we're embodying that. It's like, you know, the cancer epidemic, all of the different things that are poisoning our body because we're having to hold all of the toxicity and all of the different power structures that work against us. And so I can't imagine to just even have a taste of that or to begin to construct communities like that where you can hold that mourning as a method of healing and moving forward I mean that's just that is amazing to me and I yeah that's something that just really really resonated with me and I've been thinking about a lot Right. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that element up. I mean, you remember that was definitely part of my experience is basically mm-hmm. right once we got there, my body just like collapsed. Uh, mm-hmm. Like now you're about to ground on the dirt while you're here. Yeah. Uh, and totally. it was a little surprising initially. And then when I reflected upon it, utterly unsurprising, because again, oh, look, here I am surrounded by aunties and sisters and mothers and grandmothers who have Mm -hmm. my back so Mm. unequivocally that I can collapse right now and I know that I'm going to be good and I know that I'll be taken care of and I don't have to as one, you know, the illusion, right, or the pretense Mm -hmm. of one individual person need to carry all of this weight that I might feel 
in Mm -hmm. as sort of alienating and isolating of a system as the one that we're in right in the settler colonial U.S. right now. And so, yeah, it's so visceral um, at the bodily level. And so, again, it is really important to me that we underscore that for people that might not have ever had that kind of experience before, or maybe mm-hmm. they've heard, right, some romanticized language about safe spaces in spaces that aren't even close to safe, mm-hmm. that have mm-hmm. actually been detrimental, right, or counter-revolutionary, allowing yeah. an opening based upon over-promising, based upon, right, a sort of aspirational um, hope that isn't actually followed through with that then can mm. be more damaging than it is healing. And so to be able mm-hmm. to actually so palpably sense into that um, is something that, yeah, I only hope that as soon as possible, all of our communities can create those kinds of spaces that are real enough in their capacity to support our grief and our mourning and our rage that then we can release what we need to release to be able to be more whole, to be able to be more healed. So thank you for bringing that element up. Yeah. And I also think that there's something about being in a place that's so affirming. You know, I moving back to Orange County, which I feel like there's wonderful communities in Orange County and people doing amazing, amazing work. And yet a lot of times I feel as though I'm confronted with people that, or, you know, communities that are, I feel not naming things or calling things out in ways that need to be called out. And it is literally crazy making, like I feel crazy in those spaces. And so to be surrounded by people who are you know, not yet, not just calling shit out, but like have been for years. And you're just like, yes, there's a problem. You know, like, what are we doing to to fix it? You know, like one of the, the ways that the Zapatistas frame things for folks is what is your struggle? Like, that's one of the first questions that they'll ask. And so I think to, to be in a community that gets that from the start, it just the potential for changing things is just, it's so inspiring and it's so affirming to, to be in that type of space. Right. You know, that reflection reminds me of the idea of gaslighting. So, mm-hmm. right, I mean, colonialism being gaslighting, of course, right, mm-hmm. the capitalist corporate propaganda that we're saturated in all the time through PR, through advertising, being mm-hmm. such a sort of suffocating form of gaslighting. And could you talk about when you were there, your experience of reality and how you saw it sort of witnessed and shared? I remember at some point um, over the course of our days there, we talked about the idea of it being almost an antidote for gaslighting. So could you elaborate on that a little bit? Because also I know a lot of people haven't ever been in that kind of space that is so deeply affirming and that has the intelligence, the analysis, the praxis, the community to be able to actually affirm in such a potent way. So I know it might be really beneficial also for our listeners to hear a little bit about what that was like. You know, I think that one of the things that I've realized in my life is I have always had to sort of position myself in a reactionary space. So by that, I mean that I feel as though there's always crap shit going down and I'm always having to react to it. So like 
I'll use my schools as an example. Like you're not providing trauma services to kids who need it, you know, so now I have to react and I have to push for that. This is not happening. So I'm reacting. So, you know, people are, um, you know, going after our community. So we have to react. And so I feel as though there are moments that are few and far between where I have really been able to sort of sit in a space in a productive space and not in like a capitalist sense, but like in a way of like creating and, you know, creation and being able to create something new that is not a reaction to the toxicity that is being directed at us. So I feel as though even in my daily interactions, even when something is so critical and important and urgent, there's an urgent need. I am always having to sort of tiptoe my way around naming things and making sure I'm saying it in a particular way. I have to make sure that I'm sort of wearing the different hats that I have to wear in order to be able to get my message across in a particular way. So I have to be aware of code switching and and just sort of carrying certain factors that will make me look more legitimate. So it's always sort of trying to embody somebody that is going to be heard by folks that are just, you know, sort of, it's always that reactionary mode. So I say that because being in a space like the Encuentro, it was, there was none of that. There was no pretense. There was no, nobody cared how many degrees you had. Nobody cared where you were from. Nobody cared what languages you spoke or didn't speak. You were just heard. And again, I feel as though, you know, these are folks that have been struggling for years. Like all, you know, the women who were invited were women who struggle. And so I, I'd be waiting in line in the bathroom. I'd be waiting in line to get food. And I would, we would strike up these conversations between women. And it was already like, we, we didn't have to use any of that pretense because we already sort of knew that what we were there for, and we knew the urgency behind it. And so to hear, and I, and I didn't even, I didn't have to say anything. I could be quiet. (laughs) You know, I could like, I, I actually, that was what I did most was just listen and hear and, and learn and and sort of take in from all these folks that are doing such amazing work but to to hear it at that in that grand level I mean you know there were 5,000 women from all over the world 2,000 Zapatista women so to know that we were all there in different ways but at ultimately you know for the same reason was just amazing was just amazing and so I could I again could not even begin to imagine the potential that that would have in terms of being able to create, being able to not have to live in that reactionary space. Right. Uh, Yeah, that also is so necessary in this moment in time because everything else so often is just a sort of diversionary campaign or distraction, so to speak, to keep Mm -hmm. us from actually getting free and building the alternatives that are going to be life-affirming, that are going to sustain us for sure. So I would love for you to speak to a little bit of what you learned at the event through, say, some of the dialogues that you were able to participate in or the platicas or the workshops, so say some of the specific sort of content that was shared over the few days that we were there? Mm -hmm. There was a lot. (laughs) I would say one of the platicas that really stood out to me was this woman, Moira Millan, 
She is a Mapuche woman, so coming from Argentina and Chile. My family is from Chile, as you know. <laughs> um, and so I knew I wanted to go. I knew I wanted to go to that talk. And I think more broadly, I believe that the conversation was around women who struggle in more sort of land-based movements. I don't know if I can get into the specific content. I feel as though more broadly, the what I can speak to is just sort of the urgency around doing the work that folks need to do. So one of the things that I noticed in that particular talk, which was, you know, sort of a panel of women and different folks were sharing the different struggles that they're dealing with, specifically around protecting their land and protecting like their water sources and that kind of thing. And these are uh, indigenous groups, mostly throughout South America. One of the things that kept coming up was just how the stories that we hear are being repeated everywhere. So the the murders, you know, like I was sitting there and I kept hearing the government going after this group and this group and this group and, and almost everyone having this a martyr, sadly, and trying to sort of put back into the narrative the the stories of women who had been murdered by the police or by, you know, the government because they had been trying to protect their water or trying to protect their land. And I thought about, you know, I was sitting there and I thought about Sandra Bland and I thought about Trayvon Martin and, you know, Black Lives Matters and Standing Rock. And I, I thought about all these different movements and how literally this is happening all over the world. You know, it's literally happening all over the world. And so once again, just sort of seeing that this thing is sort of bigger than we even really understand it. And so that was really, really heartbreaking. And also this, again, the, an amazing space for folks to really just sort of talk about, listen, this is what's going on. This is what we're doing here. What are you guys doing there? How are you? So really sort of informing each other in terms of organizing and but also giving time for mourning as well. So that was really moving. And I think another piece to that was because because my family's from Chile, I think being able to connect with with people from the places that my family is from, you know, I grew up in the United States and I'm always sort of trying to find uh, places where I see myself in. And a lot of times I've been able to kind of see myself in some of the Chicano movement, but I know it's not mine necessarily. And so just, again, sort of affirming and, and also for me, sparking this desire to learn more in a very real way, this desire to know more about where it is I come from and, and how that plays into my own struggle and how I'm going to choose to struggle moving forward. Right. Would you be down to talk a little bit more about that? Um, and especially, of course, the role that family plays in that and the intergenerational. So whether it's intergenerational trauma and or intergenerational wisdom or healing, potentially. Sure. So one of the main things, I think, one of the big takeaways from the Encuentro was also thinking about narratives and what kind of narrative gets told around the Zapatistas, but also, you know, sort of more specifically sort of moving, moving in closer, who gets written in and out of the narrative. And so for me, uh, my grandmother 
was part Indigenous. We don't know, you know, where, we don't know which community, because there was a lot of shame in the family around being Indigenous. And so that background was really stolen from her. You know, I feel like she taught us certain traditions, but I think that we never really got to know that side of who we are. And then I think, you know, uh, sort of moving down or thinking about this idea of narratives. So going into Mexico and going to Chiapas, it was very interesting because I had loved ones who had heard narratives around the Zapatistas in Chiapas and in different ways. So I had folks in my family who were really trying to convince me not to go because because they thought that it might be dangerous because... <laughs> you know, Mexico and like, and like, <laughs> and let me get this, let, let me just, you know, what you need to know is that my parents live in Mexico. So, you know, but there was that piece. And then there was also, you know, uh, my parents, my parents lived through the Pinochet regime. And so for them, they've always talked about how they're not political, which we know that, you know, that's not possible that we're always politicized, but that's okay. That's what they say. And so for them, it was very real that when folks got involved and when folks started saying, you know, things against the system or whatever, people would disappear, people would get killed. I have an uncle that got killed. And so, so I feel like that there's been this tradition in my family of silence and of hiding. So you, you have to hide your truth. You don't really talk about who you are. And then also there's this tradition of just sort of playing it safe. Like, you know, you don't, you don't want to get involved because if you get involved, you get killed. And that's very real. And so I think it's been interesting sort of being able to engage in these dialogues because I was very, very inspired to really go back and start to uncover my grandmother's history, you know, like we don't know her history, you know, and I, and I just feel like, wow, like what is, what's there, you know, like, I feel like there's so much there that we don't know about. And I, you know, I shared this with you while I was there, I kept having dreams of her and she just sort of kept, I felt her presence in so many different spaces. And I knew that that sort of how are we supposed to move forward? How are we supposed to heal from, the toxicity that we're in now, if we can't even begin to sort of heal some of that, some of our own intergenerational trauma. So that's something that I'm th thinking about very seriously. And I'm sort of grappling with how I'm going to move forward. But it's a project that I definitely want to explore and move into. Yeah, thanks for sharing that piece. I know that I'm imagining many listeners can empathize with some threads of what you just spoke to, albeit from different lived experiences and genealogies for sure. Could you elaborate on a little bit of what you imagine that journey looking like moving forward? Uh, because again, I know so many listeners are in a similar place of wanting to reconnect with their ancestral roots in a good way. And there being so many questions and ambiguity and family members that might not be down to have certain conversations and all the things. Uh, so I know it might be supportive for some folks to hear some of how you're sitting with that moving forward. Mm -hmm. Well, I've been writing about it a lot. I've been writing about my grandmother. I think also it's going to look like meeting with certain family members and just sort of having conversations around what they remember around my grandmother. And that's tough too, because I know my, my, my parents, my dad and his family, they had 
some definitely joyous moments in their childhood, but they also had really, really difficult childhoods. And so I know that there's a lot of unpacking that has to go on and a lot of healing that has to go on. So I don't really, I am curious around sort of how those conversations will go. But I think just sort of starting to talk about my grandmother, she's not someone that we necessarily really talk about because I feel like it's, it's too painful for some people and, and reaching out to family that, you know, for various reasons I haven't spoken to in many years. And so, you know, one of the things, again, that I found in the Encuentro, there was this woman who was doing a project all around collective memory and just sort of trying to grab pieces of what folks remember about folks to be able to make sure that that gets archived and told and remembered, you know? And so, so like one of the things one of the pieces that she did was, um, and this was all on uh, embroidery. So she would embroider these beautiful pieces of art around collective memory. And so she did one for the 43 students in Ayotzinapa. She actually highlighted one student and she spoke to his mother. And the mother said, you know, I really want there to be, I think it was yellow. Like, I really want yellow in this. And she said, people are going to remember him for his death and how tragic that was. But I want people to know that he was joyous and he loved life and he loved living and he was a happy, he was such a happy person. And that it's so important for me for folks to remember that piece of it. So I think borrowing from from some of these amazing examples that we were given, I want to start, you know, creating collective memory around my grandmother, you know? And so I feel as though I know everything has reverberation. So I think that it may be healing some of the stuff that my family, you know, hasn't dealt with just yet. So we'll see. I'll keep you posted on how that goes. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to yeah. hearing more about it. Thank you for sharing yeah, that. Sure. And so after the fact, descending back into the heart of Babylon, returning to the U.S. and specifically to Orange County, I would be curious to hear a little bit about some of what that experience has been for you. Because I know for a lot of folks, we have these miraculous encounters or experiences, and then it can be pretty gnarly. There can be quite a sort of harsh come down when we return to the matrix where people don't necessarily share any of the same sort of principles or values, let alone explicitly caring about much of anything or anyone outside of themselves, let alone collective revolution or decolonization. And so uh, what has some of that been like for you and what have been some of the sort of proactive strategies or tactics that you have engaged to maintain clarity around so much of the wisdom and the brilliance and the beauty that was shared with us when we were there? Mm -hmm. Well, you and I talked about leaving the United States. Uh (laughs) Uh, That was one thing. Um, I think that was a thing. I think, um, you know, it was really tough. What I what has been helpful has been finding allies here and people that can affirm. I'm very lucky that I have a partner who I can talk about these things with and sort of talk through the process with. And I have, you know, some friends that I can also talk to, you know, you and I checked in shortly after. So I think that is super important. And that's actually something that I kept hearing from different women at the at the Encuentro was sometimes it's it's not worth it to fight in a place that's just sort of 
destructive. Sometimes you have to find a bigger, you know, sort of structure that you're aligned to and just align yourself to that, you know? And so it was sort of that reminder. And I think that was, that was beautiful to being there. It was a reminder that there's folks that are doing amazing work everywhere, you know, in Orange County, in different places in the world. And so it's just sort of that question, like, what is it that I'm going to align myself to? I think there is always sort of this idea with a lot of folks that they have to be in these toxic structures. And listen, I feel like we need people everywhere. But I also feel as though I'm, I will no longer subject my health and my well-being and my mental state of being into something that's just going to be destructive for my soul and my heart and my humanity. And so if I can find those spaces that are already doing work, which are many, actually, then I think that's sort of where I want to align to in this moment. So that was one of the things. Another has just been writing. I I went last week, I found via Facebook, this group of women who had been at the Encuentro were going to be doing a share out near where I live. And so, you know, I made it a point to go and, and that was amazing. You know, one of the things that the Zapatistas has told us, which is why I'm talking to you now, which is out of my comfort zone, that, you know, we need to share what we experience. They wanted us to continue to be women who struggle. So choose your struggle. What's going to be your struggle and you keep and keep fighting you know and so I take that really seriously when the Zapatistas tell me to do it (laughs) they know a little something about life (laughs) so uh that you know that's what it is and I think that's what it boils down to it's so interesting because actually there was there was a moment where at at this particular uh, platica that I was talking about with this Mapuche woman, that after all of these different women from all these different countries talked about the abuse that they were being subjected to, uh, one of the Zapatista women got up and she responded. She wanted to respond to what she was hearing because she was very moved by what people were saying. And one of the things she said was, you know, listen, this isn't easy. This is not easy to struggle. Like struggling is hard hard. Sometimes we're treated badly because of it, or we're rejected because of it. And she said, our families are not, you know, sometimes they're not aligned, or they don't understand, but they don't understand that we're doing it for all of us. And that was something that I am taking with me. And I am understanding and in every struggle that I am going to engage in now, I know I have an army of women that are holding me and supporting me. And even though I'm not there, I know it's out there. And so for folks that weren't able to go, you know, I just hope that they know that that we're supporting them, you know, that we are supporting them in their struggles. Just keep fighting, (laughs) keep keep it up, you know, because it's very important, critical work. And we're doing and we are doing it, as you say, for our collective healing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, we haven't talked so much about the aspect of the space being a separatist one yet, mm-hmm. as in no cis men allowed, but it being welcome mm-hmm. to everyone else. Would you be down to delve into that a bit? So what that was like for you, the significance of that more broadly, because also tragically, I know a lot of folks um, may not have actually ever really been able to experience 
a separatist space with no cis men allowed of this kind, particularly mm-hmm. that is an explicitly revolutionary space and for days on end. So could you elaborate mm-hmm. on that a little bit? Mm-hmm. I think it goes back to that idea of safety. I think because of that, it allowed all of us to engage in ways that we wouldn't be engaging in if cis men had been allowed in the space. So what I mean is that it goes back to, you know, what I was talking about earlier in terms of competition, right? I am very, very lucky because I have spaces where I am with women only, you know, and I have, I, I have a lot of those spaces in my life, but to have it at this mass level, I think that we have gotten so used to the male gaze, like literally just walking down the street, having to be aware of, you know, am I wearing a bra? Am I not wearing a bra? Am I being perceived in the, in a particular way? You know, am I not? And so like, even going, even making the trek to, to the Caracol, it was, it was so interesting because I think, again, talking about these narratives, I left from Tijuana, right? Tijuana is a space that, you know, according to American narratives, we're not supposed to be in. I left at midnight, you know, alone, a single, like by myself, a woman, young woman traveling alone at night, right? I'm going to Chiapas. I'm going to hang out with the Zapatistas. Again, like a, a, a group that a lot of people in the media would have us think are dangerous or, you know, the like, right? Like all the stories that get told about these revolutionary groups. And so I'm doing all these things that, you know, according to society, I should not be doing, right? So that in its, in and of itself was something, I think, very powerful. But then to be embraced into this space where it was just women, it was sort of like that all of that dissolves, you know? You're just... You're there. And again, like I, I felt as though we're so used to, I'm so used to the male gaze. I'm so used to folks having expectations for how I should behave because I'm a woman. I'm so used to having to be mindful of when I'm walking back at night, because you know, oh, it's dark fall. So I shouldn't walk back by myself or I shouldn't, you know, we, we hear all these stories that are really victim blaming in terms of policing women and women's actions. And so when you take cis men out of the equation, because we're all part of the patriarchal system, then that starts to dissolve, you know? And so you don't have those same expectations. I, Again, like it was the safest I have ever felt in my life. I could go to the bathroom in this dark, dark space out in the mountain somewhere at three in the morning if I needed to. And I and I did not feel threatened. I wasn't thinking about, you know, what am I wearing? Is what I'm wearing going to be perceived as, you know, trying to call attention to myself or trying to sexualize myself? Do I have a a light? Do I need a buddy? I need to go, you know, get my buddy so I can walk to the bathroom to take care of my biological needs. There was none of that. And so talk about being in a reactionary mode. When you take away all of those things that we like we have internalized doing for so long, then wow, like think about how much how much space you free up to to do things that are actually pretty amazing and incredible and have nothing to do with reacting to other people's bullshit expectations of who you have to be. Thank you. 
And I'm so grateful that you brought up the competition piece because actually uh, it's funny, right after I asked the question, I remembered the aspect of it being so a women's only space. Um, so of course, trans inclusive, that was explicitly anti-capitalist and pretty fiercely feminist. That mm. also is everything too, because unfortunately, again, it's tragic to have to even name this and it's tragic to even have to dignify this in a conversation about the Zapatistas, but because it's so dangerous and so prevalent these days, I have to name, there are a whole lot of alleged women's spaces that are every kind of poisonous, that are in mm. every way, shape, or form, the same old hegemony, the same old competition, the same old poison, the same old, right, dog-eat-dog -dog internalized, I have to screw someone over before they screw me over because mm -hmm. believing in solidarity must just be some trick, right? This such deeply embedded suspicion, right, that capitalism has indoctrinated into us to not trust each other that, yeah, actually, it's important to me to add that qualifier that it's explicitly an anti-capitalist women's mm -hmm. space that can mm -hmm. allow for that kind of camaraderie and support. And, you know, I never use the word sisterhood, but it's almost <laughs> closer to right a sense of sisterhood uh, than I feel like I've ever really felt in a space before. Mm -hmm. And... You know, and I'll name precisely there because the term sisterhood has been so co-opted, especially by mm -hmm. what Robin Morgan back in the 70s, white, <laughs> bougie U.S. citizens mm -hmm. that are in every way, shape and form completely the one percent except for mm -hmm. them being women that then try to impose their approach to centering themselves at the expense of all of the rest of us within understandings of what, say, a woman's circle might look like. So yeah, thank you so much for bringing up those elements that you did because I have such deep yearning for other women to be able to experience that legit form of support and not just more spaces fronting as women's circles where they're subject to even additional backstabbing, right, or skepticism or mistrust or suspicion, but to actually be able to tap into that level of nourishment so then we can actually be sustained in doing the work that we need to do and just in being, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm wondering if you want to return to any of the topics that we've gotten into so far to follow up on anything, because I know we have gotten into so much. <laughs> I, I just feel like we have to do this once a week because there's so much to talk about for yes, the next please. year. <laughs> I think we just started scratching the surface. <laughs> One thing that was so beautiful and unexpected, and I don't know why it was unexpected, was just how hilarious the Sabatistas were. <laughs> like there was so like there was just so much joy and comedy. So for example, we were talking about this the other day with the women that I mentioned so the first full day that we were there you know we had all traveled all night we had waited to walk into this space which is also part of part of the process too is sort of this experimenting with patience and sort of again time and and things taking more time to prepare and to complete and understanding that that's actually how time works and that we are in such a space of uh, instant gratification so that really shifting your your own level of consciousness and ability to be present and really actually 
taken all of these lessons that you were able to learn. But so we had had, you know, we had traveled all night and the whole thing. And we'd gone to sleep, I think, pretty late. And at dawn, at like five in the morning, <laughs> we hear like these Zapatista compañeras just like rocking out hardcore <laughs> to las mañanitas as a way to wake us up and welcome us to this space. And it was so, it was, you know, it was so surreal. I was just like, what is happening? But, you know, these women were just like rocking out hardcore and just, you know, embracing us, giving us this gift of las mañanitas. Like, what is happening? You know, so it was just, I think that level of joy, one of the things that I was reading to just sort of refresh my memory around this was, you know, in a lot of pieces that I heard the Zapatistas talking about, they really embraced that idea of joy and that actually revolution is joyful and struggling is joyful, you know, and that maybe there's not always dance and singing, but there's there's joy in it because there's something joyful about uh, you know, getting to the truth of things and sort of affirming who you are. And so I don't want to end without naming how hilarious they are. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so much that we could get into about how breathtaking the beauty of the space was. I mean, the murals, right? Oh, and the yeah. music and the dancing and the visual art, all of the visual art, all of the art. I mean, a convergence, right, of um, revolutionary artists from all over mm -hmm. the world, overwhelmingly mm -hmm. Latin America, bringing, whether it's their zines, their patches, their jewelry, mm -hmm. their clothing, um, I mean, broadsides, political posters, all of these forms of art that match, right, the level at which they're throwing down. And so truly, if you ask me, there's something to you know, just like somatics teaches us, the more you're actually present and aware and alive to the fuckery, the more you're able mm -hmm. to embody the joy, the ecstasy, the pleasure. And so I really feel like mm -hmm. um, that was part of the partying that we saw every night. And of course, no drugs, <laughs> no alcohol, like yeah, actually, yeah. right, being... Mm -hmm so exuberant in one another's presence mm -hmm. and that allows us to be nourished to be able to be rejuvenated and replenished um in recommitting to our purposes in life on the daily so yeah thank you so much mm -hmm. for ending on that note also allowing yeah. people to begin to sense into how hilarious and poetic and really <laughs> the kind of yeah i don't even have words for Mm -hmm. good-natured mm -hmm. and hilarious they were so yeah, yeah thank you so yeah. much for bringing that piece up yeah of course well thank you so much for your time and energy and everything that you shared and to be continued hopefully sooner rather than later okay sounds good thank you how can you and your community support the zapatistas and their struggle to overthrow capitalist patriarchy that's all. The power of the people is louder than the evil. That's it for today's episode of Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by the Grassroots Adult Freedom School Liberation Spring. I've been your host, Anjali Nathupadia, and I thank you for listening. What did this dialogue evoke for you? You're welcome to post questions and reflections in the comment section below to continue our collective journey of unlearning, remembering, and imagining. If you want to share feedback, such as segment ideas or potential guests you'd like to hear on the show, email liberationspring at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow Feral Visions on SoundCloud or iTunes, where you can find our free show archive. 
The Liberation Spring YouTube page also has the video recordings of most all of our dialogues, too. If you'd like more information on this show's topic, including upcoming online classes and one-on-one community independent studies, check out liberationspring.com. To donate to the project, check out Liberation Spring's Patreon page. Thanks to Climbing Poetry for our theme song, We Rise for technical production, and Grammy Award-nominated Zion Angelus of Baby Mamahood for our opening. Please consider leaving a rating or review so others can find out about the show. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode. And in the meantime, let's make our ancestors proud.